Ahoy! It's your boy, and today is Sunday, November 26th, and uh, I'm jumping from one thing to the next. Um, I'm really exhausted. It's I don't want to say it's very late. It's late for me. It's about 9.30 here, and uh, we're just at the end of our Thanksgiving break from school, and although I always look forward to breaks, I always feel at the very end of them, well... When I'm in the middle of them, I, I actually kind of realize that uh, I need a lot of structure. Uh, not to stay productive necessarily, but just to like feel good about myself. Um, I, uh, I, I've literally just spent the last like five days like hunkered down, spending hours and hours a day on this thesis that I've talked about. And uh, I just feel so sedentary. And uh, it's just one of those things where, you know... I, yeah, well, maybe it's just like the days where I'm actually up and about and doing a bunch of stuff. Although I might be tired at the end of the day, it's a different type of tired. It's the type of tired that you feel after accomplishing things. Whereas there's a certain type of, uh, you know, when I'm just like sitting or working on a paper or something creative, by the end of that day, I just feel like I've been stewing in my own juices. And uh, it's ironic that I've never wanted to shower more than at the end of a day where I've done no physical activity, you know? Like, actually, I was just, I have a friend right now who's in Taiwan, and I'm very jealous because he's actually, uh, he's staying in Taipei, but he's in Hualien, which is a place that I went to, uh, spent a couple nights in uh, when I was in Taiwan. And it's very beautiful, and they have a very famous park there called Taroko National Park. And uh, I apologize if, I don't know if I've told this story, but um, my trip to Taroko National Park was phenomenal in and of itself. But that's not really a story to tell. That's something I would have to like show you pictures to sort of explain to you. But the story, uh, one, I mean, I just spent about like, you know, I don't know if it was like f six hours just hiking around this park in the sun. And, uh, you know, Taiwan is already hot and I run hot and I'm a sweater. So, you know, even though I'm wearing this like water wicking shirt, I'm just my I'm, my clothes are completely soaked through with sweat. And knowing that this is going to happen and knowing that there's actually not a lot of time between, you know, how much time I allotted for myself to sort of hike around the park and catch the train back to Taipei, um, I was sort of, the night before I was kind of thinking, how am I going to do this? Because it's like a two hour train ride back to Taipei. And if I just go straight from the park where I know I'll be sweating all day to the train, it's going to be very offensive to the person that I happen to be sat next to. So... Uh, but it was hard to know what to do exactly because I was leaving for the park at literally like six in the morning and I needed to be checked out of my room at 11. So even though the room is right next to the train station and all that good stuff, I needed to be checked out and even, uh, uh, confirmed that with the, uh, um, with the hotel manager or whatever you want to call them. So I asked him, I said, okay, you, uh, he had the room reserved for somebody who was anticipating that room. So I said, okay, you can't let me keep the room, but can I ask you this? Can I hide my, can I hide my suitcases in your basement, uh, which he let me do, and is there another room that I could use to shower? Now, if this sounds very presumptuous, this is not the type of question that you ask people in the United States, but when you're bumping around Taiwan... You know, um, I'm sure there are, if you're at the Marriott, if there is a Marriott in Taiwan, maybe you don't do it there. But for the most part, people are, are very open to negotiation and understanding. And, and this is not a uh, overly familiar or strange thing to ask somebody. I mean, at the end of the day, they can always say no. But typically, people are happy to accommodate you if, if they're able to. So he let me hide my suitcases in the basement while I was at the park. And let me use his upstairs, his own personal upstairs shower when I got back from the park. But uh, the crazy part was, is uh, I mean, there's a whole other story here about how I fell asleep on the bus ride back from Taroka National Park, where the bus actually went. When I woke up on the bus, I was headed back to the park. And it was this whole crazy process of like getting off the bus and trying to get on a different bus. I basically got on the, the wrong bus back to Hualien like two or three times, ended up getting off of the bus ju just because I knew where I was in physical proximity to the hotel, which was across town, literally across town, which is not super large. It's like two or three miles or something like that. Um, but I was like, I know how to get to the hotel from here. And that was very important because my phone happened to die. So 
I was like, I have this hour window where I literally need to run across town, which is exactly what I did. I jogged from the beach to the train station. You can find this on Google Maps yourself, I'm sure. Uh, and had to locate the hotel just by memory, which uh, was uh, not uh, the easiest thing in the world, but something I was able to accomplish. And then shower. I had to go upstairs and use this guy's personal shower. But the you know the weather in Taiwan is such that even after I showered, as I'm putting on my clothes, I'm sweating again. So uh, I don't know why I was telling you that story, <laughs> except to say that uh, that was actually kind of enjoyable you know there's something about being up and about and even if it's super humid and super hot and uh you you know your your malodorousness may prove offensive to the person that you're seated next to on the train that feels a certain way and yet there's something about the sedentary state the swampy sedentary state i find myself in at the end of a day where i'm sat in front of my computer just typing a paper where i feel like i need a shower even more you know like after I exercise, when that happens, I haven't done that in like a week and a half or two weeks. You know, I'm fine just kind of sitting in that brininess, you know? I mean, I have to, I do shower eventually. I'm not saying that I don't, but I'm just saying like that that, that just feels different. But there's something about the, the oozing uh, 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 swampiness that happens from just kind of being sedentary that um, is not only, not only feels bad in your person, but like feels, feels bad for your soul. So um, that's where I'm coming from. And I should, you know, I should have taken a break, but I spent about eight hours today on this paper, and I just know that if I let myself check out and start hanging out or watching Netflix or YouTube or whatever, that I may not get to this. So while I have some momentum, I figure I'll just click over and and uh, and do this. And um, so even as I'm saying that, I feel myself beginning to yawn. But that's okay. It's Sunday, baby. We're um, right on the cusp of getting back to our regularly scheduled programming and uh, getting back in the swing of school for just one more week. We have our regularly scheduled classes for one more week, and then we get another week off uh, for a dead week. Uh, I think they're actually changed. They're rebranding that. <laughs> when I start, there's I'm trying to. There's something else that they're trying to change the name of. But there's literally been a pushback by students from calling the week before finals dead week because i don't know i don't know what the objection is but obviously there's something about that language that people find dispiriting uh and so i think i don't know if they're calling it rest and relaxation week or something like that and there was another phrase my classical chinese teacher pointed something else out to me i i can't remember what it was um oh uh yeah it was something like instead of saying oh this is insane so instead of saying hit uh killing two birds with one stone there's, there was literally a push for people to say, feeding two birds with one scone. Hey, dude, are we losing our fucking minds? That's a real thing. There was literally a push. Like, a memo went out to people to not say killing two birds with one stone, but to say feeding two birds with one scone. Hey, what? Yes. Wow. Okay. I'm not saying that it's not better. I'm not saying that it's not more cheerful. It just it just doesn't I know I just doesn't even register for me if somebody says a dead week. I don't go, ooh. I understand that we're talking about a relative deadness to the uh to to, to the schedule, right? Oh things are like if you're at a restaurant and there's nobody there. Oh, things are dead today. Anyway, let's not get mired in that nonsense. Um so where am I? Yeah, I was working on this thesis, oh, and I was saying it had to be a minimum 40 pages. It's at 43 right now, and the only thing I've really worked on is, you know, there's like an introduction, there's two major body portions to the thesis, and then there will be a conclusion, obviously. I've only worked on the sort of middle two sections, because that's kind of the body of the paper. And also... um, I think I've always told myself that I'll go about writing papers this way, and I never do, but I am doing it this time, which is, you know, whether it's songs or papers in the past, I usually just start from the beginning, you know, and I just sort of work my way forward. Um, I know a lot of people in their creative process, whether it's like writing a script or something like that, they do a lot of outlining and that sort of stuff. And it's not that I don't have a general outline written somewhere or even in my mind of what a paper is going to look like, 
but I, I very literally start from the beginning and don't move forward until I've sort of like, you know, it's basically like laying down track for a train. I literally don't move forward until I have something down um, and can even get mired in that stuff, trying to polish it until it's perfect before I take a step forward. Um, but with this paper, I'm just working on the two main body parts because I figure, um, you know, the introduction is basically you're just enumerating what you are going to say. And the conclusion is you're summarizing and re recapitulating <laughs> what you have said. And so I just figure, uh, yeah, a good way to use my time would, it would, it'll, it'll be much e easier to write about what I will say and to recapitulate what I have said once I've already said it. So, um, yeah, the paper was supposed to be a minimum of 40 pages. It's at 43 right now. It'll probably be, I bet it'll be 60 pages at least before I've written the introduction and the conclusion. But I can't imagine that those will be much longer, you know, than four to five pages or something like that. Um, uh, and honestly, although I will probably just have to turn that over, I mean, I've been I've been giving uh, chunks of it to the person who's supervising my paper anyway. But I still, feel, I mean, just seeing how things are going to shake out, I still feel like, you know, even if things go as as good as they probably can go, that'll still be a I would say a strong first draft. Um, that will will be good. You know, it's funny. It's like. It's like it's like other things too. I mean, as you're working on something, it just feels kind of confused and kind of difficult. You're just you always have that sensation of like feeling your way forward in the dark. And I you feel that way with everything that you work on. And there are aspects of this paper where I touch on things that I've written about in other classes and I'm sort of drawing from other sources. And so what I've done is you know, there have been times where I'm touching on a, uh, on a topic that I know is semi-familiar to me or I may have written about in the past, and so I'm going into my archives because I basically save everything in the cloud, right? But I kind of go in and look at other things I've written to see if I can kind of cull uh, any of those things and just kind of repurpose them. And it's just kind of funny because you look back sometimes on things that you never would have thought about or something like that, and you think, oh, man, I pretty much had this figured out when I wrote this the first time. Or you're kind of you know, fumbling with how to ex express something and you feel like you're doing it for the first time and yet you kind of dig through papers you've written in the past and you realize, oh, I've already written about this and actually that's pretty good, you know? So you kind of repurpose what you've already written. But uh, it just, you know, people talk about this thing sometimes where like when they're writing songs, they're kind of just writing about whatever happens to come to them and, um, you know, sometimes they're not even sure where it's coming from. And then maybe a year or two later, they'll have some what they experience as some type of like, you know, therapeutic or emotional insight. But then they look back on a song they wrote like two or three years ago and they realize, oh, I actually already knew all that stuff about myself. And actually, I'm expressing, you know, what, what feels like this new insight. I'm actually expressing it in some ways more cogently when I didn't know what I was talking about than I feel like I'm capable of doing now. And I think that that's true of this paper, too, for some reason. I think sometimes, like, uh, maybe I'm forcing this connection, but, you know, in Taoism, in Chinese philosophy, this the topic that I happen to be writing about, there's this concept of wu wei, which is no, uh, what's a good word for it? Uh, it used to be translated as non-action, which people kind of associate with, like, quietism or meditation or something like that. But really it means, like, no unnecessary action. You know, you don't do anything with overt purpose. You basically uh, just respond to events as they unfold. Or, or you respond appropriately to every situation that presents itself to you. Um, but you don't work extra hard at anything. Because by doing so, you actually kind of sabotage yourself. And I don't know if that's true, with a capital T. But I do, or at least the way I interpret that... <clears throat> um, is with this idea is, yeah, a lot of the things that we're just kind of doing without any real purpose seem to be the most successful in hindsight. It doesn't feel that way. But that's that could be because, according to Wu Wei, this idea of Wu Wei, that really we're just kind of we're just kind of improvising. We're responding in the moment. And we're improvising as things happen. And if, uh, I don't know, maybe it's like jazz music. I mean, I'm not an improviser when it comes to music in that way. But I'm sure that there are 
you know, musicians who would say, hey, when I'm just in the moment, you know, I don't know how good something is, but sometimes I'll go and listen back to a recording of mine and I'll be, you know, you know, improvising something that's way better than anything I could have sat down and tried to intentionally write. Um, and yeah, I don't know. That, that feels true to me in some ways. I mean, I, I'm thinking about recently, I had this, uh, I mean, I guess as I'm sort of approaching finals, I always feel like I'm like wildly miscalibrated or I feel like, what the fuck am I learning about anything? Because especially as you go through school and with every semester that passes, you feel like you're both learning something, but especially, you know, one, as you just sort of move through college in general, but especially as I'm thinking about going into higher education, you think you're somehow calibrating yourself to kind of assess your own work and know when you're doing better and all that sort of stuff. And while that's true, I'm just endlessly baffled by like, you know, the tests that I go into and think I do very well on sometimes are the tests that I don't do as well on. And sometimes the when I walk out of a test and I'm absolutely convinced that I bombed it, I do exponentially better than I think I'm going to do. And yeah, I'm not sure what that's about. I feel like maybe we've touched on this recently because, you know, this subject is sort of calling to mind an anecdote I know I've shared recently, which is when I was younger, I took voice lessons. And there was one time going into a, a lesson where I was sick And my teacher was actually saying, and I recognize this myself, hey, you actually sound really good today, which is very strange. I mean, there is this thing called stage health, which we talk about sometimes, which is no matter how sick you are, if you have a performance or a presentation, you will be deathly ill until the moment you step on that stage, and then you'll be actually pretty good, and you'll be like, holy shit, I'm actually getting through this pretty well. And then the minute you step off stage, you'll be sick again. But I think think there's, yeah, I think baked into that is something about uh, when we're sick or when we assume we're not going to do well, we kind of let let go. I mean, I don't know if this is true, but they say in a drunk driving accident, the two people who survive are infants and the drunk person because they don't resist the accident. They don't know what's coming, so they're just kind of flung, and this is kind of morbid, but they're kind of just like flung, and they just kind of, uh, you know. I mean, I guess I'm thinking about like a stunt person, which is if you throw yourself down a flight of stairs, you just kind of go with it. If you just get all rigid and try to resist it or try to calculate your way down the stairs, then that's when you usually get fucked up. But uh, if you just kind of roll with the punches, I, th- I think the I think the idea is that you'll come out uh, relatively less injured. So anyway, why am I talking about that? I don't know. What I am thinking, though, is you know, at the end of these long days, well, one, I sort of tell myself, you know, like a second ago, as I sort of stepped away from my computer for a moment, probably to use the restroom or get some water or something, I was thinking, man, that was a good day of work. And then I think, well, was it really? I mean, I don't know. People have harder jobs and, and probably do bigger things. And also, we're living in a time of war where, you know, it's just bizarre to kind of be sitting here in the relative safety of my apartment and working on a paper and feeling, one, a little bit uh, beleaguered by that, but also, you know, knowing that uh, there's millions of people, billions of people across the world who would uh, happily take up my thesis in exchange for whatever uh, life circumstances that they have to be struggling with. Um, But I had this thought, too, which is, you know, I wish, there's this, uh, I don't know, do you guys know who David Goggins is? He's this kind of... uh, He's in that kind of Joe Rogan ecosystem of uh, supposed experts or, you know, I can't think of their names, but there's like, you know, whoever came up with the idea of the cold plunge. And then there's some like neuroscientists at Stanford who there's just this whole strata of like kind of dude bros who fancy themselves intellectuals. They're very much into stoicism for some reason. Um, stoicism for them is like the height of human intellectual achievement. And uh, not not to minimize that. I mean, I remember me- reading meditations, Marcus Aurelius' meditations when I was 17 <laughs> and being like, oh, wow, this is really cool. But yeah, they're very much into stoicism. Um, they're into jujitsu, ju- right? And they're into, I was thinking about this term, but, you know, I'm built different. Like, David Goggins is this dude who, like, runs, like, super tri- triathlete marathons or whatever. And, I mean, he's absolutely insane. He obviously has something. He, I mean, he actually is built different. But, like, his whole motto is, like, he'll just be running and I'll talk about how your haters just don't want to see you succeed and so you have to stay hard. 
but there's this idea too like when you're when you're up against it you need to tell yourself like yeah while everybody else uh while everybody else uh sees the challenge and shrinks you know i'm built different that's my fuel you know i feed off fear i feed off pain I remember years ago, I knew this girl who like told me, and I've never forgotten this, but she said she worked out at this gym where there was a lot of like military dudes, and one of them wore this shirt that said, pain is just weakness leaving the body. And I've always remembered that. But that's exact. but I'm, you know, whether it's, uh, I'm built different, that's the kind of thing, uh, this pain is just weakness is leaving the body. This is the type of mantra you know, uh, aspirational mantra that a lot of people kind of tell themselves uh, to kind of push through things. Uh, but I do, I don't know, I do wish I had a little bit of that. It's one of those things where I was uh, controversially trying to explain to someone, and I don't think they understood what I was saying, And uh, but, uh, you know, maybe you will, which is, uh, I hate Trump. But there is something about his uh, unwavering belief in himself that I feel like if I just had a sliver of, my life would be a lot better. Like I said to my therapist a couple weeks ago, I, I was probably indexing, I was probably referring to something like this where I was saying like, yeah, I, you know, people have this hypothetical where they're like, you know, they feel like their intelligence makes them kind of unhappy, like based, like knowing what I know, how could I ever be happy? Or my, you know, my, in a way it's kind of like self-congratulatory, <laughs> but it's like my highly scrutinizing mind uh, experiences the world with such a, a, alarming clarity uh, that, uh, you know, I somehow see the world clearer than the befuddled masses do who, in their ignorance, are somehow happier. Uh, it, it, although stupider, are somehow happier. So, you know, a sort of uh, self-imagined intellectuals will sort of say things like, oh man, I would sacrifice about 10% of my intelligence if, for, for 10% more happiness. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure I'll completely disregard that. But uh, I was saying this in terms of Trump, which is like, you know, if I had to be completely dispassionate about my uh, contempt for this person and, you know, the kind of genuine evilness that they exude, there's a lesson to be learned here from this person, which is, you know, if I believe that I'm a well-calibrated person and that I'm a good person, how is it that I can't muster the type of confidence that this person has, right? Like, I'm not saying this is my thing, but, you know... I did have this thought where it's like, you know, people who, there's a certain lane of people who will announce like, there's nobody good in their area, or there's no, there's no good girls, or there's no good guys out there. Um, but I think something, well, you know, I've always talked about this idea that like, I'm working my way back to zero, right? I'm trying to become a human being. And, you know, whether it's as a student, whether it's as a partner, whatever it is, it's like, I always feel like I'm waiting to arrive at this place where I qualify for something. And the truth is, at the end of the day, you know, uh, there are, maybe mostly, horrible parents out there in the world. Like, Hitler had a wife. You know, you don't need to be a good person to find a partner. There's somebody out there for you right now. And I know that sounds awful, but I'm, I'm trying to wield this in a kind of a motivational way which is something that I've actually said to people when I was working on the crisis line sometimes, which is, you know, if you're, if you never, ch if from this day forward, you never, quote, developed anymore or nothing about your life or circumstances or disposition or intelligence or whatever got any better, you still deserve love. You still deserve, you know, to be cared for and respected right now. And where am I going with this? Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I feel myself kind of pushing. <laughs> I feel myself kind of pushing through this conversation, and it's not that we're talking about complete nonsense, but I have to admit that my brain is kind of going around like a pinball machine. I'm not sure where we're going or where we've come from. <sighs> Something about uh, wanting to be smarter. Something about Trump. Yeah, maybe I was just trying to say. Yeah, how is it that somebody who's so overtly reprobate, if that's a word, somebody who's so uh, overtly deficient has all the confidence in the world, and yet, you know, uh, I don't want to be presumptuous, but someone like myself who's probably a pretty decent dude has 
you know, not that confidence, you know. Like, what would it feel like to just know in your gut that you're a good person or anything? I mean, I waffle over so much stuff. I mean, hell, I, I even think there's a way in which, like, just writing this paper. Like, I talk to people sometimes who are like, oh, I have this 28-page paper due tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, my God, what the fuck are you going to do? And they're like, oh, I'm just going to write it. And it's like, you know, I've had to, like, proofread some of these papers sometimes. I mean, there's nothing worse than when you're in a class and the teacher does, like, peer review shit. Because it's like, one, at the end of the day, you really only care about your paper. And so, you know, um, you know, it's also hard to get good feedback, too, sometimes. Um, because there's, whether it's a song or a video or a paper that you're writing, if you ask for feedback, people will give you some, whether it has anything to do with what you're going for or not, which I think can be kind of disorienting sometimes. So of course, sometimes you get some very legitimate and good feedback, um, uh, but it's also hard to come by. But the point of this is, uh, <laughs> what, uh, the point that we are arriving at is what is confidence oh yeah maybe it's just enough to say when i'm working on a paper part of what makes that such a protracted process is just like deliberating over things that i feel like i should be actually working through very quickly and so there's certainly there, there's something about the person who can sit down and just crank out a 28 page paper where they're clearly not inhibited by the quality of what they're spitting out now i'm not saying that that's good enough but again i'm talking about this on a continuum of like uh, Trump or the completely uh, non-prepared person who has to sort of rush through the paper at the last minute. I'm just saying I want a sliver of this because if I feel like I'm pretty well calibrated, if I could just kind of, whatever that wind in the sail or uh, perpetual motion machine that that person is kind of sitting on that helps them get through a 28-page paper without uh, feeling especially inhibited, that's the type of thing that I need. Because at the end of the day, I kind of know all the materials are there. But, you know, the writing the paper becomes this, like, long, protracted process of marination where, you know, I kind of sit here and, like, write a sentence. And then I get up and pace. And I kind of muse and think. And then I sit back down. And I kind of, sometimes I'll like vomit out like a couple sentences and then I think, and then sometimes I'm just like looking through sources, you know, rereading the same highlighted passage like over and over again, you know, and I'm always constantly feeling like I'm mopping myself into a corner. And sometimes I don't even, you know, it gets to this point where your head is so dizzy that you feel like, I don't even know if I believe what I'm saying as much as I'm trying to force this point or force these connections. And it's only like the next day when you kind of sit down and reread the work that you did where you go, hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> I sound half intelligent, actually. Yeah. But I will say there's something, too, about papers. And it comes from reading a lot of articles and, and essays, too. I mean, academia fucking sucks, man. I mean, obviously, it, maybe it's just my temperament, which is the more I think about it, you know, I, I could totally see myself, you know, getting a master's or something like that. But, like... So much of academia, even even articles about things that I essentially enjoy, even if they're kind of like in the same playground that I like to play in, just academic writing is so shitty. And, you know, every once in a while you find someone who's like very uh, cogent and kind of plain spoken and you really get the sense that what they're striving for is clarity and to be understood and they're making an earnest argument but 99% of the stuff that I read, just it just reads like obfuscation and like obvious bias and everybody's kind of citing the same shit and it just feels like regurgitation of the same stuff over and over again. And it just feels like, I don't know, it just, it just seems like a nightmare. And, and a lot of it over so much minutia, like who gives a shit about this stuff? <laughs> Anyway, is it clear that I'm disgruntled? Is it clear that I'm burnt out? Is it clear that I'm eager for the semester end? Man. Hell, your boy's graduating, dude. That's wild. It's crazy to think that in... Where are we at now? 
Well, I guess by the calendar, it'll be three weeks, but I think my last final is actually, will be two and a half weeks from now. You know, I actually did this thing that I, I don't often do. I've gotten more comfortable with doing it, but I sort of looked up yesterday as I'm sort of ending this long break where I've kind of been marinating in this thesis, and I realized, oh, dude, you have a project for a history class due Thursday that you haven't even looked at. I don't even know what the assignment is, frankly. And at first, I was very kind of um, upset about it. And, uh, excuse me. Oh, excuse me, sorry. Kind of resentful. But then I thought last night, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to ask for an extension. And I, I have found in the past when I've done that, I've maybe done it like two or three times, I've actually gotten it. And usually with, uh, you know, a few qualms. I think, especially if you're a student who's kind of demonstrated that you're actively engaged in the class and you've done good work so far, you know, they realize, yeah. I cut the kid a break. Um, but yeah, I got a response from the teacher. He's like, sorry, I can only extend, offer an extension for people who have like a documented emergency. And I was like, ah, that's totally fair. Thanks for, thanks for letting me know. But um, yeah, I'm right at that stage where, and I'm sorry. <sighs> I know I'm yawning. If it gets out of control, you know, it's not inconceivable that we could cut things short. But um, otherwise, I'll just ask you to bear with me. But um, as I bear with myself, but... <laughs> fuck it i'm a dork but uh uh yeah i'm right at the end of the semester where i always find myself where i have all these sort of looming assignments and it's a bit like squid game or something you know like that i don't want to you know if you haven't seen squid game i don't know catch up but there's like i, I don't know if it's the last game but there's one of the games where the people there's like that glass bridge or whatever and people there's like two rows of glass panes one is tempered one is like i don't know what they call it i don't know if tempered means firm i think tempered means firm right so there's one that's like tempered where it can support a person's weight the other one is i don't know not and so you have to kind of make your way across this glass bridge but you can't know where the tempered glass is and so if you step on the wrong pane of glass you're gonna fall to your death so yeah this is the premise of Squid Game, right? There's just all these games where people die or they don't, and if they don't, they move on, and if they die, well, there there you go. But I'm at this stage, at the end of the semester, where I have all these looming assignments which are sort of stretched out in front of me. You know, and they're big assignments. It's like essays, a test, then you have the finals and this sorts of stuff. So it's a bit of an obstacle course that I'm sort of looking at, and I always think, I don't know how I'm going to actually do it. Like, how is everything actually going to get done <sighs> excuse me because at the rate things are going it just doesn't seem like it's possible and yet you know things seem to get done and again i just have to remind myself it's you know there's two classes i'm taking where i just need to pass i don't need to do perfect i don't need to get an a i really just need to do good enough and yet that's a it's easy to say but it's hard to do and even as I'm saying that, I feel like, you know, maybe that sounds like, uh, you know, the person sitting in a job interview who says, hey, what's your biggest fault? And they're like, my biggest fault is I care too much or I work too hard. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say, um, yeah, not that I always do my best, but yeah, there feels something kind of dangerous about letting out the, you know, taking my 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 foot off the gas, so to speak, letting myself kind of coast on certain things. Yeah, I don't know why that is. <sighs> and you know what it is, dude? I mean, part of my sitting here yawning, and I'm thinking about, like, you know, just doing in my juices, and, like, I even, like, set a reminder for myself to, like, take a shower tonight. Um, I just don't feel good, man. And I always tell myself... I always find myself at the end of the semester, like I just feel, you know, tired and sleep deprived and bloated. <laughs> like, you know, especially as I get older, I find like, you know, sleep is really the foundation of health. And, uh, you know, even when it's during the week and I'm exercising like three to five days a week for like 30 minutes a day, if you're not sleeping, you're just, you know, it's just not good for you. And, uh, excuse me i mean i mentioned my friend who's in taiwan and i remember this time last semester we were kind of conversing over video chat 
And I was just a mess. I mean, I hadn't shaved in like two weeks and there were like dark circles under my eyes and I was just in it. You know what I mean? And it was probably like a week or two before. The, it's probably exactly where we are this time last semester. And he was just like, God damn, you know. But then I went to Taiwan. It was very restorative. You know, I felt great. And I started the semester with like a spring in my step. And I even told myself, I was like, I really wonder if I can, you know, you know, given where I'm starting from, if I can really dodge the bullet this time. You know, if by the end of the semester, you know, not that it will be any easier schematically. Is that what I want to say? Not that it's going to, yeah, it's still going to be hard. It's going to be, well, it's going to be what it is, especially knowing that I had this thesis looming. But can I not be disheveled? Can I not be sleep deprived? You know, and, and also, especially since I'm uh, not working, you would think that I ha would have all the time in the world to kind of get everything done. So, you know, again, this is just one of those magical ways that I, you know, even though I'm taking two classes, pass, no pass, even though I'm not working, I still make things difficult on myself. I still push myself to this place where it's like not healthy, you know? And I think like, what is that about, man? It's like, I just can't let myself chill. You know, it's like that thing, speaking of David Goggins, it's like when I, when I encounter these people who are like, oh yeah, I run a marathon every day. It's like, hey, what are you running from? <laughs> or it's like, yeah, because if you stop running, you have to feel your feelings, right? Yeah, there's something like that going on, maybe. But here's the thing. I mean, this is sort of the looming question that I sort of come to in therapy all the time. And actually, as I'm saying this, I realize I have to confront in therapy tomorrow um, because we didn't have it last week. Is like, you know, actually, I was listening to, who was it? I want to say maybe it was Bill Burr. But let's just assume it was. There's like this comedian who was formerly like very... Uh, What's the word? I was going to say acerbic. I don't even know if that's the right word. They were very uh, confrontational and kind of whatever. And as they've kind of gone on in the career, not that they've lost that completely, but the tenor of their comedy has kind of changed. And when people kind of asked them what was going on, uh, you know, uh, why have you kind of like cooled off or why are you not so... I think contrarian is the word that they use, which by the way, I see being used like kind of uh, pejoratively. I've kind of imagine myself to be a contrarian, but always kind of thought that was a good thing. But I see that word being kind of used as a pejorative recently. But the point is, is he said, well, I had this kind of epiphany in therapy that, uh, you know, I was actually a contrarian because that kept people away from me. You know, as long as I didn't agree with anybody, nobody got close to me. And the reason I bring this up is that it's kind of one of those things that sounds like armchair psychology. But it's like somebody who loses, someone who's formerly morbidly obese and loses a bunch of weight. And then all of a sudden that they realize that even, you know, they think they thought losing the weight was going to accomplish all these things for them socially. They realize that they're still the same person and that it was actually the weight was, you know, while they had the weight, it was a justification that kept them from looking at this thing that they actually live with all the time. Right. And so there's, there's this idea that when we go to therapy, there's this kind of like, aha, moment where the Rubik's Cube gets solved and the puzzle falls into place. And there's this heretofore unrealized insight that like turns the key in our brain. And I've, I'm not going to bore you with rehashing the same shit over and over again, but I, I've, you know, one of my contentions is that actually people who've done a lot of therapy, um, you know, more than just a year or two, you know, one of the plot twists of therapy is actually you often, not always, you arrive with most of the insights that you're going to have. Now, life is long, and if you go to therapy for a really long time, nobody can anticipate all the twists and turns that their life goes through and, and how our mind changes and develops over the years and the insights that just come with, you know, the general lived experience. But I'm talking about the insights of therapy, these types of aha moments where we retroactively kind of, you know, re- you know, we, we sort of gain some new insight that, that forces us to kind of reimagine our story or, you know, whatever narrative we've been telling ourselves about our past or whatever, we're kind of given some new clarity on it where we can kind of recontextualize it. And everything kind of falls into place. A lot of the things that we, you know, the real thing about therapy is not, 
like maybe I've said this a million times. I've certainly said it in therapy recently, but like when I arrived in therapy, I treated it like personal training, like someone who's overweight, who's like, hey, I'm emotionally unfit and where I, you know, I'm sitting at this emotional weight and I'm trying to get down to this emotional weight. And, you know, I assumed I would go there and I would be basically held accountable every week by this person who was going to help me do the work. Like people talk about this all the time. Like they'll sort of prescribe for people like, hey, go to therapy and do the work. Or you see this on dating too. People talk about they want to date someone who's doing the work as if there's some kind of universally applicable thing that people encounter in therapy. It, it, yeah, anyway, it's just not, it's just, it seems uh, one of the, one, one of the kind of reductionistic ways that we kind of talk about mental health and especially what the sort of sort of self-imagined progressive enlightened crowd sort of want for themselves and essentially for other people. But the point is, is that I went to therapy thinking that this was going to be a personal trainer who helps me get where I want to go. And this is not a perfect analogy, but what therapy actually has been is like, you're actually fine the way you are. And part of the problem is you trying to force yourself to do this thing that you actually don't want to do. You know? Like when I think about the person I was before I went to therapy, I felt absolutely beleaguered and I felt like I was up against this kind of immovable force, this thing in my life that was keeping me from becoming the person I was supposed to be. And it was just this cycle that happened in perpetuity. Like sometimes I would kind of get my head above water, but then it would just, things would just kind of cycle back down. And I remember right before I went into therapy, I just had this like, incredible just downswing again and it was like you know who knows how many dozens of times I had found myself in this place and I think I remember just like picking up the phone and calling my brother or something and saying hey man like I something needs to change I need help and I think my brother just said hey man just hang up the phone right now and call I think I told him I have this therapist number I haven't called it I think he just told me hang up the phone and just call them right now and I think I did and left him a message and the rest is history but it was like it felt so clear to me before a therapy what I thought the drama of my life was, you know? And it's hard to articulate now, but I'm just saying, I remember I felt so clearly that the work that I needed in therapy was to help me get to point A. And point A was where a lot of people were standing, you know, a lot of people in my life, I thought, wanted me to be standing over there. And yet, you know, I sort of, I, 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 said, I said in therapy something like, if I had never gone to therapy, I would have lived the rest of my life struggling with myself, trying to get myself to this place where I thought I should be. And the great tragedy of my life wouldn't have been that I wasn't doing well you know, I mean, I look back on my life and I think I could have gotten the job. I could have married the person. I could have done the thing and I could have done it well. But had I continued down that road, the tragedy of my life is that I would have had everything that everybody wanted for me and I would have been miserable. And the, you know, the work of therapy is darker and mysterious and more scary, because at least for me, it's, you know, it's like all these, I, you know, things that I enjoy, the ways I like to spend my time, things I like to do, that kind of other people seem to furrow their brow at, or think is a waste of time, or think is like endemic of actually what's wrong with me. You know, it's been about like giving yourself permission to actually explore those things and, and allow, you know, give yourself permission to actually go deeper into those things. I mean, it's kind of a cliche example to talk about, you know, the Robert Frost, like two roads diverged in the yellow wood, but it's something like that, <laughs> you know? And it's hard too, because there's so many well-intentioned people in your life who, by virtue of just, you know, we can't see outside of our own perspectives, it just is the case that what happens to have worked for us, we want for other people. Right, so it's very easy to become prescriptive, and what, what I mean, and therapy could be one of those things, right? Like right now, we're just in this. It's a default, you know. We all believe in therapy, and it's a good thing, and everybody should have it. But you know, maybe not everyone needs it, you know. And by the way, a lot of therapists fucking suck. 
You know, I don't want to cut people short, but I've I've met dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people who've announced that they want to work in mental health, that they want to be therapists. And maybe there's a lot of assumptions here, but there is nothing about them to me that indicates that they have any talent in that direction. I've met some people who are absolutely fucking incredible, who I think would be phenomenal in that work, but it's exceptionally rare. So even though we're pushing people toward therapists, we could be pushing them into the arms of crazy people who will fuck them up. You know what I mean? Um, but where am I going with all this? Um, the dark work of therapy. I don't know. I was talking about something like the dark work of therapy. <laughs> who the fuck knows what I'm talking about? Who knows what I'm talking about anymore? The dark, what was I talking about? Something about the dark, deep, and mysterious work of therapy, the the the, the dark path of therapy, the, the, the plot twist of therapy. I don't know. It was so poignant. <laughs> this is the worst part about life. It was so it was so poignant in my therapy session where I said it, it, it actually, this is a perfect example of those moments where when we're just extemporaneous and speaking off the cuff. We oftentimes have the ability to express something highly, well, maybe that feels highly complex in other moments, very clearly, and find the perfect analogy or express ourselves, you know, very articulately. And yet, in this moment, where it's completely un uninspired and, and forced, and I'm looking for something to talk about, I'm not able to express this clearly. So, but hell, that's the exercise, right? But there was something poignant and true about this observation I made in therapy, which is, yes, you know, prior to therapy, I had a very clear sense. I was certain of what the work of my life needed to be for me to be happy. I needed to solve X about myself. And by, you know, working through that, <clears throat> I would be happy. Now, that's harder to articulate what that meant exactly, but I've seen it play out in a thousand ways in my life. You know, even as I'm sitting here and I'm saying, oh, I feel sedentary, I don't feel healthy. You know, it's like I think by working out X number of days a week or by living at X weight, I'm going to be happy. I used to run all the time. I run a couple half marathons. I was, I was running like six days a week. I was, you know, as I'm sitting here and as we get older, you know, our bodies change and we sort of look back on our younger selves and think, why did I think I was ugly? I would like love to look like that. Um, but I, you know, I've been overweight. I've been emaciated and I've never been, <laughs> I've never been happy. Not, not, no, no physical form I've ever embodied in any way moved the needle about th this, this thing I'm trying to change about myself. You know, and I've dated all different types of people. You know, I've dated people that were strictly <laughs> physical attraction, and I've dated people who were, you know, the other end of that spectrum. It was it was really all about the emotional connection and that sort of stuff. And while I, I do have a value judgment on that and what I want for myself, I, it never fixed the thing about me that I've been trying, this, this X factor. It's never solved those things. You know, and the same is true of music. You know, if you had asked me when I first started playing open mics, like, what's going to feel like happiness or success to you? It would, you know, uh, of course, there's like an international superstar or something like that. But I mean, realistically, it was exactly the types of things that I ended up accomplishing in music, whether it was X number of streams or playing this venue or whatever the case, or, you know, hell, I mean, there was a day where it was just finishing a record or finishing a song. But I mean, having a meaningful output you know and if you just want to talk about streams i have more streams than most people i've ever met in my life i've certainly written and produced and released more music than most other songwriters that i know at least in my sphere people that i know but i'm telling you that none of that made me happy i mean it was very fulfilling in many ways but it never solved the x factor that i keep returning to And so, yes, I'm trying to weave this into this insight that I have in therapy, but there's, yeah, there's just something about this idea that, like, the plot twist of therapy is to, like, dig deeper into the parts of you that you're actually trying, that you think is wrong with you. You know, there's many moments in my life where I, you know, before therapy when I was younger, I would express something that I thought and felt that was just met with such censor and sort of incredulousness. And as if what I had just said was like sacrilegious or verboten and, you know, 
indicated something like profoundly wrong with me. And yet, you know, in therapy, when you have those kind of early sort of uh, paradigm shifting insights, you realize, oh, I was, that was the, that was the realness. <laughs> like that was the truth, you know? And it's, it's just, yeah, there, there's just, yeah, I don't know what to say about this. You know, there's something paradigm shifting about therapy, what that therapy has been for me that I just feel like, but for my experience in therapy, which is, which itself is predicated on privilege, um, you know, and a host of other things that I, you know, I don't know what I did right in a past life to, you know, have the resources that I have, but it's, it's weird to be sitting in a place where I feel like this, there, there's something about my experience in therapy that I do feel is so crucial to so, for so many people, maybe not for everybody, but for a lot of people. And yet, you know, there's so many barriers to accessing that. And I just have to believe that so many of us live our lives you know, I don't know, Sisyphus is kind of a cliche, right? But it, this idea of just rolling the boulder up a hill and it's rolling down, and it, and it feels like good work, you know? Like, this may sound strange, but try to dig my point. I heard, I hear this all the time where people will, um, I, uh, well, let me first say what I'm trying to shoot for here. I'm trying to, I'm trying to shoot at this idea that, like, there's a conventional perception of things, and then there's like the Jedi perspective of things. So it's like, you'll hear this platitude oftentimes, which is like, why do these basketball players get paid exorbitant amounts of money to put a ball through a round hole? You know, or why do these actors get paid exorbitant amounts of money to, you know, sit around on a set all day? I mean, they're not a, a they don't have a real job. They're not like a person who like lays bricks or, you know, or you'll, you know, people will sort of counteract celebrities, like when, when, when people, businessmen or whatever, will say like, hey, I work hard for my money. And they'll say, well, a school teacher works hard or a business person works hard. Look, everybody works hard. But when we're talking about money, if that's what we want to talk about, I mean, how we value different arenas of labor is a whole other conversation. But you can't, you know, when it comes to the sphere of money, you know, Steph Curry get, getting paid millions of dollars to play basketball, even if he only even if he only works one hour a day or two hours a day or whatever it is, has nothing to do with the time he puts in, and everything to do with the amount of money that he makes somebody else. Tom Cruise doesn't get paid twenty five, thirty, forty million dollars a movie because his work is commensurate with that. Tom Cruise makes 40, 50, 60 million dollars a movie because he makes somebody else 120 million dollars. By virtue of his presence, somebody else makes a fucking windfall. And so they say, hey, if Tom Cruise can make me 120 million dollars, he deserves X cut. Or when it comes to the you know, when to the bargaining table, Tom Cruise can say, hey, by virtue of me being in your movie, you can make X times more money than you would with Joe Schmo over there. The same thing is true of basketball. If you go to a basketball game, basketball is the last fucking thing that's happening there. It's about concessions. It's about insurance. It's about, uh, you know, there's advertising space. You know, Steph Curry goes by my stand. Steph Curry could be like, I could stand on this court and pick my nose. And if you make a hundred, you know, if you make X millions of dollars a year because of that, you better believe I'm going to get a percentage of that. So that's how that works, right? So even though someone who is a laborer, and I'm not saying that it's not hard work, I'm just saying when it comes to finance, right, someone can work very hard, but you know the saying like work smarter, not harder? If they took all the energy that they were directing in the remedial thing that they're doing, the sort of Sisyphitic, if that's a word, the Sisyphic-like task that they've sort of assigned themselves to, yes, you're working very hard, but it's not working very smart. And it's easy to kind of sit there in the cycle of this and sort of announce to the cosmos, it's not fair or whatever. This, this should be taking me somewhere. But if it's just not in the cards, it is this kind of like Sisyphus-like thing. Now, maybe that's a very circuitous way to sort of get to this idea that I'm trying to get to. <clears throat> Which is there's a way the labor, the sort of personal work that we all tell ourselves that we're doing can be like that too. Like all the time, I hear people say, oh, I'm kind of like my own therapist. 
And it's like before therapy, I probably would have said the exact same thing because it wasn't the case that I wasn't smart. It wasn't that I wasn't self-reflective. It wasn't that I couldn't look at other people and feel, maybe presumptuously, that I saw the kind of inconsistencies or contradictions or, you know, they treated themselves like a mystery, but it seemed pretty fucking clear to me what was going on. Um, I thought that I could sort of, uh, you know, uh, wield the same insight that I seem to be able to project on other people so clearly onto myself as well. And in, in a way, it was almost because I felt like I was capable of figuring everything out on my own and yet I didn't see the changes. In, I couldn't bring myself to do the thing that I wanted to do. I couldn't bring about the changes in my life that I wanted to see, that there was just something profoundly wrong with me. And what I needed was to go into a room, almost like a drill sergeant or something. You know, I'm, I'm going back to this idea of like David Goggins and like built different, which is like, I, f I felt like I needed a software change. I finally needed to go to a place where somebody, you know, barked orders at me or like gave me the structure that I didn't have that was going to keep me from being the soft person. And I think there's a way, you know, again, maybe for some people there is this kind of transcendent quality to like running a super marathon or something where, you know, maybe like a meditative practice or something where there really is something to be said for pushing yourself truly beyond the limits of what you think is possible. Like, you think your body is going to give out, and you just keep on running. And I'm, I'm not talking about a marathon. I'm talking about even further than that. Maybe there is a type of transcendent uh, consciousness-raising experience that comes from that, that, you know, you kind of want other people to experience, and that translates into other, other aspects of your life as well. And yet, I think there's a whole population of people who sort of see that in David Goggins or the kind of whatever this kind of newfangled machismo that we're kind of selling to people about being built different oh I'm built different when really all the resistance that you're feeling is actually your body and your mind and your psyche and your constitution screaming at you like this is not going to make you happy you know, this idea that pain is just weakness leaving the body. Well, pain is also like a hardwired... Like, I, I had this idea years ago. I was talking with someone where, again, it just extemporaneously, I came up with this image that, you know, hell, maybe in this moment I expressed everything I've been trying to say far more clearly than I ever could now. But I was talking with somebody about, again, these types of insights in therapy. And I was saying, like, before therapy, it was like I was sitting in a theater, like, you know, they talk about like yelling fire in a crowded theater. It was like my body was screaming at me that something is profoundly wrong here. Like my body was just screaming fire, fire, fire. And I was turning to it every day, every moment and just going, shh, I'm trying to watch the movie, <laughs> you know? And I think that's true too. I think, you know, it's easy for successful people to kind of look back on the unwashed masses and sort of tell them what's wrong with them and narrate whether it's true or not, right? I mean, who knows what fantastical stories people, people sort of make up about their own journey. But to sort of look back and tell people it's about like running a super marathon is like the solution to their problems or, you know, anyway, I'm sort of talking myself in circles, but I think the point is, is that you know, we kind of set ourselves to some sort of task in our lives thinking it will make us happy. Where the truth is, like, sometimes we, ah, this is poignant. We have to, you know, rather than roll the rock up the hill, we have to just, like, set the load down and, like, look for something else. Like, I've literally said this. Like, again, the thing I'm constantly banging my, the door I'm banging my head up against the wall with is I have all this insight, right? I regurgitate it every week. And yet, why do I prefer my life like this, right? Like I say, oh, maybe this is the maybe this is the semester where I don't reach the finish line, like uh, tired and unhealthy and like underslept. Um, and yet, even though I've done all the work needed to do, whether it's not working or taking a couple classes, pass no pass, I've taken all the pressure out. I still get myself to that position, right? What? Why do I prefer that? Why is that the default state for me? Why is it that like I it's like I don't even know I'm alive unless that's the world I'm living in? 
There is something like, I just, I insist on carrying this weight with me everywhere I go. And if I alleviate it in one aspect, I'll look for something else to pick up, you know, to, to, uh, to, uh, you know, put the same weight on myself. You know, and it's literally like the question is like, you know, I, if I was sort of being a sort of TV therapist, I would say, well, what, what would it feel like to put that load down? And, of course, the question I'm left with is like, well, what am I going to do with my hands? <laughs> so there you go. I'm going to leave you with that. Um, you know, kind of a, a manic late night uh, tirade I've sort of gone on here. And, uh, yeah, all I can say is uh, thanks for coming into this bounce house with me. Thanks for, uh, you know banging against the walls and sticking with me no matter where we go and uh let's leave it there for now and we'll look forward to picking it up next week until then thank you for listening thank you for your time and ciao for now <laughs>